The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Hello, um, would you all join me in reading chapter, uh, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 18? After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He's a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Hi, everyone. My name is Lana, and I am one of the elders here. Um, I always... um, have fun when Pastor Ellis says, hey, do you want to teach on one of these days? It means he will not be here. Um, so <laughs> um, before we dive into the scripture um, and kind of walk through it together, um, I'd like us to pray together um, about just this, what this passage represents and what Jesus is trying to tell us here. Um, Father, we come before you, Lord, together as a, as a body, Lord God, and as a community, Lord, and we ask you, Lord, that you reveal this scripture to us, Lord God, in a way that we have not yet known. I pray, Lord God, that even though it may be a familiar passage, Lord God, refresh it in our hearts and our minds, God. Set our minds on you, Lord God. Help us understand you more, God, and help us ultimately be changed, Lord God, as we leave here today. In, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
So as I was reading um, the passage, this uh, festival of tabernacles um, became a very interesting um, like word. And I was like, what is this festival? <clears throat> I want to know more about it. Um, it is, and it's on the slide for you, it is um, held around harvest time, usually in the fall, and it would meet kind of like Thanksgiving in America. Um, you would uh, bring all these um, gifts to um, Jerusalem and Judea, like it says in the word, um, which will be symbolic and thanksgiving of everything that the Lord has given you in the harvest. So you would uh, bring all your uh, males of the family, so they were required to attend this festival. It wasn't just a thing that you choose, like a concert that you choose to go to or not to go to. Um, this was part of the law, and it says so in Deuteronomy 16, actually. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So we see here that it gives a little bit of credit, in my mind, to Jesus' brothers, because they were clearly asking him, like, well, why weren't you going to go? Um, because Jesus and his brothers were raised in the way of Jewish law. They have gone to this festival every year. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is saying that he's not going to go. They're probably like, what, is, what are you talking about? Like, what's wrong with you? Um, and not only that, but it was one of the most important festivals. There were three, like uh, we read in Deuteronomy. Um, it was as long as the festival of, um, a little bit shorter, than the festival of Passover, which is clearly the most important one. But this one is, is almost as long. So they were, it was something that they were used to doing. And all of a sudden, Jesus is not going. And also one of the things that I noticed, um, the tabernacles means tents or booths. And ultimately, this festival um, is a symbol of how the Lord provided shelter and food and care and comfort for the Jews when they were in the wilderness. Um, so even though this was a developed city, um, of Jerusalem, they would still set up these tents and booths and they would use them to cook the food that people were bringing or to even dance around them and even sleep. Um, and I thought this was kind of a, like a family gathering, but in, you know, community way of Jerusalem. So now that we know a little bit more about the, the history of this festival, um, I want to move on to the, Jesus, the conversation that Jesus has with his brothers. So they say, um, now go to, go to Judea for the feast. And they say, so that your disciples may see your works, which you are doing. Kind of a detached comment, I thought. They're not associating with the disciples of Jesus. They're not saying so that the disciples will be there and they will listen to you and they will see the work that you're doing. They're just saying, like, imagine the setting of the room and, like, Jesus is over here and the brothers are over there. And they're saying, so your disciples can, like, they're clearly not interested in, in being one of them. However, they know about all the miracles that Jesus has performed. There's no way they wouldn't know. 
He turned water into wine, and Jesus' uh, mother was there. So they would clearly know that. And there's no way they could deny that. And they knew that he was healing people. And they knew that he was multiplying the uh, fish and the bread. However, they were not looking beyond that. They thought it was just about the miracles. And they thought that it was just about him gaining the followers and gaining you know, increasing his public, public speaking career. They said in the next comment, why would you do that in secret? A person who wants to be known goes into public with this. So clearly, they are not even interested in what's behind the miracles. They're not, they're not curious. Hey, Jesus, like, I, I heard about this miracle that you've performed. What, what was that about? Like, why are you saying now that you're not just going to not go, but it's because your time has not yet come? What do you mean by that? We've, you've just been to Jerusalem. You've come back, yet you're not going to go back to Jerusalem because your time has not yet. Like, I'm confused. Can you tell me more about this? None of that. They were just completely, I mean, maybe they were bitter. Having a perfect sibling is not easy. And having an earthly perfect sibling is not easy. But imagine Jesus as a sibling. It was probably um, a little bit of that as well, <laughs> especially growing up with him in the same household. I can imagine how that can be a little hard. But we can, say, uh, we can, we can see here that um, he was just not, he was not biting into it. He knew what he was going to do, and he knew what he was supposed to do. However, when your family comes at you like that, it was probably very discouraging to hear. This is the family that is supposed to support you, supposed to understand you and love you. However, they're just like poking at him, sort of poking fun at him. And I don't know about you, but I found comfort in these verses while reading because when my family, a couple of my family members are unbelievers and whenever I talk to them about whatever I'm doing here in Baltimore, why am I even in Baltimore? They're like, that makes no sense. Like, they kind of laugh, and they, not, they don't say anything anymore because they know I won't, I won't change. But they sort of still, like, have this smirk on their face. And to me, it, it brought comfort because I know Jesus understands that. It's not a foreign problem for him. He, however knew that his real family is up in heaven, heaven and that God supports him way more than any of the earthly brothers could understand ultimately. So another thing dawned on me when we read this. They kind of reveal that they're, um, you know, verse 5 says that they were not believers of Jesus. Even his own brothers did not believe him. And that's a great clue, so we're sure that they weren't believers. But they kind of revealed that of themselves even before when they say so that your miracles, you can perform your miracles, they, you know, it dawned on me that seeing Jesus perform miracles, even in our daily life, does not mean that a person will believe. That enough, uh, sorry, that alone, the miracle alone, is not sufficient for saving faith. It has to be more than that. It has to be focused on the one who is performing the miracle. It can never be. And, you know, Jesus does use the miracles to draw us closer to him, clearly. But that is never the deciding factor in someone's just wanting to walk with God. 
and, and our hearts being changed um, to believe in him. So they clearly give advice to him here that he needs to take his public speaking career further and go into the uh, masses and do more miracles and teach and do all these things. And Jesus does not waver. He doesn't say, oh yeah, well, you know, nothing bad can come out of it. My brothers want me to go public, so fine, I'll just go. No, like he doesn't compromise anything. Even though he still goes later to the festival, as we know, he's, he did it exactly how the Lord wanted him to do it, in secret, by himself. And not like in secret for it to be hidden, but in secret because that's how it was supposed to be, not to draw attention. And also he knew that his brothers did not care for him. They did not want to protect his life. Jesus knew that the Jewish leaders were after him already in Jerusalem looking for him. So he knew that his brothers were probably going to just tell everyone that, hey, my, Je my brother Jesus is here. Go watch the miracles he's going to do. Not because they believed him, but because, you know, for the sake of it. So we see it happen a couple of times before in the Gospel of John alone, uh, alone when in John chapter 2, he, um, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness for, of men, for he himself knew what was in man. And another time it happened in John 6, verse 15, Jesus perceives that a crowd was about to come and take him by force and make him king. So he withdraws again to the hills by himself. Um, by himself. So Jesus was not interested that people will see his great power as a human, as king, you know, to be on the throne. He was, never, he was never after that. What Jesus was doing and what he was um, after is spreading the gospel through, in this case, Jerusalem, because he did go back in secret, and he sat down in the tabernacle and started to preach, not preach, teach. And, um, you know, that kind of... Um, brought this thought to my mind, when we are given advice by unbelievers, what do we do with it? Do we go back to God and say, God, I received this advice from my friend, my mom, whoever. I want to make sure that, you know, it sounds like good advice, but I wanted to make sure that it is with your will. What do I do, Lord? How do I respond to that? For Jesus, it was natural to walk in God's will. It was natural to walk in the way that he was created. And, you know, he was without sin. However, for us, it is not natural. What we receive from unbelievers sounds more comforting sometimes than what the gospel offers us. It sounds comfortable. It sounds maybe we will even gain more if we go the way of the world. However, that's not what God is telling us to do as Christians. So I encourage you, even from this passage alone, whenever you receive advice, Go back to God and not like run it by him, but God, ask him, God, what is it that you want me here to, to do here? Um, and one other thing is that Jesus, like the whole timeline and restraints that he wasn't going to go, uh, go to this festival and the time has not yet come, that wasn't placed on him. He willingly was choosing where to go 
and where not to go because his will was according to God's will and God's will was according to Jesus' will. They were one and the same. So he wasn't like forced to stay and not have fun because he wasn't going to go to this festival. He seemed very sure about that. So when I was reading, it challenged me, am I sure about the things I'm doing in God? Do I still want to go to this festival, quote unquote, something that I have to restrain myself from because, you know, I'm a Christian and I don't do that. We, we have to find that our will corresponds to the will of God. That's where our growth will come from. And it doesn't come naturally to us. It has to come with practice and positioning ourselves before the Lord and humbling ourselves. So then Jesus um, sent, sent, um, says it to his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I am giving evidence against it, showing that its works are evil. For you, any time will do to go to the uh, festival. For me, my time has not yet come. I have a specific purpose. And it may sound a little, even maybe rude how he responded. Like, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters what I do. But that wasn't like that. Jesus is not like that. He was carrying a specific purpose in that statement alone. And on one, at one level, um, the world means, you know, the universe, the earth, all the people that live in it. And then on another level, because God always has another level, it means the deep-seated attitude of flesh that lives within us that hates whatever God tells us to do, that hates whatever God asks us to do, whatever he corrects us when we are doing something wrong. And, you know, understanding that, that it's not just the world, like the Jerusalem world or the Jewish leaders who were, um, you know, being plotting against Jesus. It's not just that, it's us too. You know, it's very hard to um, live according to the gospel. It's not easy to sacrifice, to humble yourself, to um, let go of comfort, to let go of the choices that will make you more comfortable maybe, that will bring you more riches. And here it says that the world hates Jesus because Jesus was its censor. It was it's not that Jesus was preaching the judgment to the world alone. It's not just that. He was correcting them in what they were doing wrong right then and there. And we don't like to be corrected. Our flesh does not like to be corrected. So that's what he means here. He doesn't mean that, um, you know, we are to hate the world because it's all wrong. No. The world represents, the, the, the word uh, world means it's our flesh that turns away from God the minute it gets an opportunity to. And it's our um, responsibility as we walk with the Lord to come back to it, always anchor ourselves back to the Lord, saying, God, I know what I've done right now was in the flesh. Forgive me. How can I turn back? How can I change course? How can I you know, <laughs> um, have my ship go directly at your will at this point in time? There is, always, there is always correction needed. We're never going to be perfect. Don't live in that lie that it will just be easy and it will be smooth sailing. It won't be smooth sailing. No one promises us that. And in our own relationship with God, this flesh 
arises every single time. And the deeper you go with God, the bigger the flesh will seem. That's, that's how it works. And, um, you know, the attitudes of the world, the, the Jewish leaders have started to represent the attitudes of the world, the attitudes of the flesh. They hated the correction. They hated that he was saying, don't do that and don't do this, that you have this law, you've had this all this time, and you judge each other by it, but yet none of you can keep the law. They did not like that. So they were already, in the scripture we say, we, uh, we see that they were already looking for him, asking everyone, where is his Jesus? They saw the b- brothers clearly. They knew where he was from, where family, uh, what family he was coming from. So where is Jesus? He goes up secretly, and instead of doing miracles and performing these public speaking, I don't know, conferences, he teaches. He does what he was called to do. He sits in a in the temple, and he teaches. And then everyone was just amazed. Where is this man's teaching coming from? He didn't study under any of the rabbis, which is how in the Jewish um, community back then, that's how you get your knowledge. There's not like a university of law. And he didn't study in any, um, under any of the rabbis. He wasn't even here when these teachings were, um, were announced or, or taught. Where, where is his teaching coming from? Why is, he so, why is that so appealing? He sounds so smart and eloquent. And it's just, it was piercing them in a way. And then the key verse of this passage, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man's will is to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. He who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. It reminded me of 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. So here Jesus does not, does not seek to correct his brothers and say, you know what, no, I'm going to go in secret against what you're telling me to do, and I'm going to teach, and all of these people are going to follow me again. He doesn't, his flesh doesn't rise up like that. He goes sure of what he, he has to do. He goes sure of what God told him to, to teach about. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. And he's not self-seeking. He seeks to bring the glory to God. And, you know, his whole ministry in the three years that he was doing it, carrying it out, he had an all-consuming motive to glorify God through salvation of men. He didn't teach for people to follow him or for people to agree with him. He taught for their salvation, which is the opposite of people agreeing with him. So when we talk about God, when we talk here in the church or when we go into the world and you know, go to school or work, what do we say? Do we say? do we say true to the gospel or do we kind of alter it because we don't want to offend anyone? Because Jesus didn't, didn't care. He corrected the Jewish leaders. He corrected people in his community. And you know what? 
it said in his, in his um, passage here, you will know where my teaching is coming from. I don't have to prove it to you. I don't have to bring a certificate from my rabbi to say that I've completed these credits. You will know because what I will do. And his ultimate showing, his ultimate proof of his teaching was the cross. That a self-seeking man will never give up his life for anyone. A self-seeking friend a self-seeking husband or wife, a leader, will never give up his life for the people that he's gaining attention of. Jesus was the opposite of that. That was always his goal. And he did not want, he said, whoever will follow me will follow me. He knew exactly the timing. He knew exactly the purpose. And we know now that, you know, whatever you Whatever you say to people, whether it's sharing your testimony or saying, you know what, on Sunday morning I can't come to work because I go to church in, in whatever, um, whatever other ways you're sharing, you know, it will one day bring questions. It may one day bring mocking. It may one day bring like, well, well, why not? Like, it's the law. Like, why aren't you going? Aren't you going to, you know, speak in public because that's where your career is supposed to go? You're trying to gain these followers and just stay true to what God is calling you to do. Don't be discouraged. Don't waver because, you know, this person may think that or you may lose your position in whatever group of friends that you have or you may lose your position at work. It will pay off because the ultimate gain that we have to gain is Jesus. And just like he did, the ultimate gain that he had was God and heaven so that he can meet us there. So with that, you know, with the, with the sacrifice that I just talked about that Jesus has put on himself, um, that's what the Lord's tables represent on either side of our room. We don't just go to the Lord's table and we, um, you know, partake in it because it's a weekly thing to do even though we do do it weekly. But there is a meaning behind it. As I take this cup, as I take this bread and I drink this cup, I'm remembered, Lord, of what you've done. I remember of all the steps that you've taken, of all the things that you've done, true to God's will, you stayed, you, you were tried, and you stayed true to God's will, to the calling that you have received. And I'm going to do that because I partake in the cup and in the bread. That's ultimately what the Lord's table is about. So as we are closing here, and the worship team can come up, we have a task here to do. Will we say what's true to the word and to the gospel and not waver? Or will we want to seek comfort and be okay with it? I think this passage can be as clear as, is as clear as it can be with that. Let's ask God um, in our prayer time together to help us stay true to his word, to his calling, and help us walk in it because we cannot do it alone. It is not easy. It, it, is, it is not easy for Jesus, and it is not easy for us that much more. So if you can stand with me, we can pray. Father, 
We come before you, Lord, and we thank you, Jesus, for everything that you have given us today, Lord God. Thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord God, that we can read scripture openly, Lord God, and we can talk about you openly in this space, Lord God, and in, in our country, Lord God. I'm thankful for that. Jesus, as we dove into the scripture, Lord God, and learned how you have stayed true, Lord God, to what you were called, how you did it, how your character, what your character looked like, how you've proven where your teaching is ultimately coming from, Lord. I pray, Jesus, that we will do the same. Lord, give us strength, Lord God. Call us deeper, Lord God, into our closet with you, Lord God, our, our time with you, Lord God, so we may just drink from your river, Lord God, the river of life. I thank you, Lord God, for how sure you are of what you are going to do, God. You didn't hesitate, Lord God. You were patient with your purpose and you were kind and your love just transcended through all. I pray, Jesus, that we will do the same, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.